I was sort of thinking, why has Andrew been so outspoken on a few recent issues? And then right at the beginning of the interview, he went, oh, son of Croatian parents uh, who left uh, communist uh, Yugoslavia. Yeah, okay, I see that now. I know what they say in the locker room is a 180 to what they're saying publicly, especially when it comes to public uh, mantra and, and stuff that the mainstream is pushing. You can't disagree with that. I got put through a critical race theory seminar while I was an NBA player. Uh, wow. Shit. Yeah. Really? I was, that, I was that guy asking questions during it, which was not very well received. I lose out on marketing deals because of this. I lose out on, on, on making a bit more cash on marketing and promos and speaking gigs. People like that. We just don't want to touch it just, just in case someone protests us or, or gets mad at us or whatever. So I'm going to continue to speak out on, on stuff that's just utterly ridiculous. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is an NBA champion all the way over from Australia, Andrew Boga. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. I'm actually an avid listener. I've listened to more than a few of your shows, so appreciate you having me on. Well, brother, right back at you. I was a huge fan of the Golden State Warriors when you were winning uh, the champ championship there and playing with some of the greatest players in the world. And uh, before we get into, we want to talk to you about both politics and culture and, uh, you know, uh, sport as well. Uh, we wanted to touch on the sports side. So for people who are not basketball fans, briefly tell everybody, who are you? How are you where you are? What has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Yeah, um, uh, I'm born and raised in Australia, a Croatian immigrant family um, that migrated, um, left communist Yugoslavia many, many years ago. So a similar story to yourself um, and went over to the US in the collegiate system as a young fellow, got a scholarship to the University of Utah, went there for a few years, got drafted as the first number one uh, draft pick, number all, overall pick uh, in um, from Australia ever. Um, so mm -hmm. that was a really cool thing for our country and we weren't really a basketball nation to see where we are now and, and then played in the NBA for 14 years, played in Australia for two years towards the end of my career and Played for the national team, and that's kind of what I'm primarily known for um, was was sport and basketball. Yeah, absolutely. And you you sort of uh, gl uh, you touched on being the first number one draft pick. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I haven't had enough coffee this morning. <laughs> uh, you touched on you you kind of uh, glossed over the fact that you were the number one pick. That is a huge achievement. I mean, the players who have been the number one draft, even Michael Jordan wasn't the first number uh, picked first. Uh, that's the kind of level of honor that it was. And you said the first one from Australia. But one thing that occurs to me, Andrew, as an Australian, you being an Australian is, um, Australia massively outperforms, punches above its weight in so many sports compared to the size of population. So if you think at uh, the NBA, for example, there's so many Aussie players there compared to Britain, which has a much bigger population. You, you guys are crushing it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, we, we do really well, 25 million odd people. We have, I think we have nine or 10 NBA, NBA players from Australia right now, which is just, you know, per capita is amazing. But we... I think in the, it was the 80s, 70s, 60s, 70s era, we didn't do too well at the Olympics and the government had implemented this a uh, kind of a, a precinct which was called the AIS, Australian Institute of Sport, and they, they threw a lot of tax money at, hey, we're going to the Olympics, we don't want to come back empty-handed. 
and they invested in, in sport. They built a world-class facility in Canberra, which is the nation's capital where all politicians live. And, you know, I ended up going there for a year and a half. It was sensational. It was as a 16, 70-year-old. I went there, taught you everything about food, diet, sleep, weight room, all that kind of stuff that you need to do outside of your primary training. And they invested a lot of that. So there was swimmers, there was water polo, there was volleyball. And, and then to no surprise, we started doing well at Olympics. Um, now we're on the other side of that. Now we're on the other side of, you know, that they're, they're starting to dry up a lot of that funding now um, just because it's, you know, it's topical for politicians to do that, all these these greedy sports stars, you know, blah, 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 blah. And at times I've seen a bit of a dwindling performance. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in this next couple of years. We've got the Olympics, of course, in 2032 in Brisbane. Uh, so hopefully we can have a good performance. But that would be the biggest change for the Australian sporting landscape as to why I think we, we punch above our weight. It's it's a really interesting point that you've made and about the investment. It's so important, the investment in sport and in young people. Andrew, you were very young when you got traded into the NBA. You started your career in the NBA. You didn't even finish college at that point. What was that like as a as a young lad? Yeah, I went I went to the University of Utah first. Um, did an soul in the USA. Landed on the plane and just knew who my coach was because he had the logo on his jacket. Um, <laughs> and then when I got drafted in the NBA two years later, I, I wasn't even a, of legal drinking age in the US. So um, I was on a <laughs> favorite. Six million dollar contract at the time, US, and I couldn't I couldn't go to the bar and have a drink. Uh, so, few <laughs> of my teammates snuck me into a few places before I turned, and then and then I, halfway through the season, I finally turned twenty one. So, look, it was eye opening. I mean, my journey. I was a real late developer. I was not that kid that was picked first. I was not that kid that was the man all throughout junior basketball. Like you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, I had a kind of a tough journey. Um, a lot of people said I didn't make it, all that kind of stuff, which fueled me, which was great. Looking back at it, I wouldn't change it for the world. And then within like a three-year period, I went from nobody to the number one pick, literally. I'm not exaggerating. I went, I went, you know, about six months before college, I put my name on the on the, on the world map kind of, but the World Junior Championships and then two years in college and then I was drafted. So it just happened so quickly that to be honest with you, I, I didn't know what to expect because I was, I was just so the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But mm-hmm. once you get to the NBA all the distractions of being a pro off the court are probably the hardest adjustments, you know, finances, money, agents, women at times, all that kind of stuff. You got to kind of, you know, business dealings, shady people, you know, fraud attempts, uh, theft attempts, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot that goes on that people don't understand or realize. And you kind of have to have your head on a swivel. I grew up in like a, a lower socioeconomic area for the most part. And Mm. that was huge for me kind of navigating I knew where not to go. I knew which people to avoid. I'm on the public bus. Oh, that guy looks like he's high on something. I'm going to go sit over here. So I felt like that helped me on my later later journey once I got finances to try and make sure that you know my family could have, have wealth for at least the rest of the time while I'm alive and, and hopefully their kids and their grandkids. Andrew, and look, comparing it, so I, I really enjoy basketball. Uh, Constantine and I and the rest of the guys went to a Miami Heat playoff game. It was so much fun. We loved it. But I'm my my main sport is football, soccer. And he's, a lot of the time you see these young lads and they come from the same kind of you know area as you. They sign their big money contract in the Premier League and they go absolutely nuts. And you can't blame them. So how did you not go insane or did you go insane and you had a very good agent to keep it under wraps? Because I listened and I read... I read statistics and I knew that, you know, over 80% of professional athletes go broke within five years of retirement. I knew that. 
from, from the start. I was like, I'm not going to be that guy. I've worked too hard to get to this point. And I knew how hard it was. Like our family, you know, was, was between middle class and lower class. My father had his own business. So it depend, depend how the economy was going was how we went. He had his own business. And there were times where I remember, you know, we were eating the same meal um, in a big pot for, for five straight days, you know, like reheating it, reheating it, reheating it. And then there were times where we were eating out and having pizza. Like we had good and bad. So I experienced both ends of it. And I just knew how hard my family worked or parents worked to put food on the table. I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to lose that and squander that. So I always made sure that I was thinking about, you know, investing in the right thing, bettering myself financially. You know, I took a class while I was in the NBA, uh, personal wealth management class uh, at a university online. So just stuff like that, trying to better myself and and just being in those meetings. You know, I remember going to my first finance meeting with my financial advisor my rookie year, and I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. You know, he's using abbreviations, he's using this and yield and this. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like I just said, all I know is if my money's not there, I'm, there's, a, there's a plane load of friends coming over from Australia, they're going to find where it is. That's kind of what I, <laughs> what I said to him. And it bothered me. I was like, man, I don't, I can't really participate in this, in these meetings with these smart people. So I, I've bettered myself and I've done pretty well. Like I'm, I'm doing okay and I've retired and I can, I can not have to work another day in my life and I'll be fine. Well, that's amazing, man. And one of the things you mentioned uh, earlier was the fact that there were a lot of people doubting you and saying you're not going to make it. Why was that? Look, there was a mix of things. I, I, I was, you know, a non-Anglo uh, name. Um, by that, I mean, Bogut's not a very Australian name. It's not a Smith or a Darren, so I didn't, my, our family didn't fit in with the in-crowds and junior sport, all that kind of stuff. My father had a lot of issues growing up. English wasn't his first language and no word of it when he came over from Croatia at 16. So our family had a chip on our shoulder as it is and more passionate people. People from the Balkans generally are, are very passionate people. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that again. Yeah. In, in Australian culture sometimes, but that was a part of it. And I just, I was always kind of much to be my own drama. I kind of didn't really, I kind of was stuck on loving sport and playing sport and I was passionate, man. So as a 12, 13 year old, if, if, if we're teammates and, you're not playing the right way. As a 30-year-old, I was going to go at you as my teammate. Like, hey, pass the ball, dude. Like, your teammate was open, pass the ball. And other parents would see that and be like, oh, kids got an attitude problem. Oh, look at him. Look how, look how badly behaved he is. And it was from a point of, I want to play the game the right way. It really pissed me off. You're not playing the game the right way. Oh, well, you know, don't, don't be rude about it. No, no, play the right way. So I got labeled as a kid with an attitude problem. You know, and I look back at that time and I'm like, I coach kids um, now today and I like kids that have an attitude problem. I like kids that have a, have a bit of oomph because I'm like, you know, every two or three weeks, you might need to pick them up and put them back on the trap because they fly off the radar once once every now and then. I'll take that every day of the week because I know I don't have to motivate that kid every day, right? Mm. I'd rather do that than every day have to come like, come on, Jimmy, let's go, let's work hard, man. Come on, run a bit faster. Whereas a kid that's been the attitude, you know, once every now and then they blew up and I always look back and like, it's a coach's job to, to figure that out, to figure out the psychology of different players. And no one really figured that out of me or even attempted to, which was really disappointing. But anyway, I, I, I progressed on and used it as fuel. And like I said, I wouldn't change it for the world. I, I, if I didn't have that journey of, of, of not fitting in and matching all the best teams as a young fella, I, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, and that story, actually, I think is a story of many professional sports players that ended up making it. They they had that drive and passion from a young age, not always recognized. Do you think that attitude is partly what made you as successful as you, as you eventually became? 
Yeah, there's no doubt. I'm no no doubt about it. Um, I just put a chip on my shoulder, and I, I I literally felt like the whole adage of me against the world. You hear that from everyone, but I, I felt like that. I really felt like the world was against me, and I probably used it even more. I try to be. I'm I'm not going to be a victim, but I'm going to I'm going to mentally I'm going to say I am a victim, so I can fight even harder. Um, mm. you know, really. Every day was about that. I had a chip on my shoulder every day, like ready to go, ready to fight, ready to amp, ready amped up. Even just basic training sessions, I'm ready, ready to go. And I think that's kind of the attitude you have to have. I think you know all the kids that that were household names at 11, 12, 13, they all fizzle out because they don't have they don't have to continue to work um, as hard. They can kind of just coast through and still be the best. You know, your early developers and childhoods are usually those kids that just don't make it long term. They ever rarely make make professional. It's usually kids that are you know, beat it up by all those kids and then eventually they put more and more effort and time in and then all of a sudden that curve intersects and then it just goes like that, right? And then you just absolutely dominate the talented kids and that was kind of my story. And Andrew, what percentage of your success is down to natural talent, the, your physique, and how much of it is down to mindset? And what percentage do you think is luck as well? Look, I think I'm I'm obviously very lucky to have the size, um, being seven foot tall and long and athletic. But I will say this: there's a lot of seven footers out there that can't even walk in a straight line, right? So I still had to work. I still had to put a lot of work in. For I was growing at a rapid rate, and now every time I grew as a young fella, I lost coordination. You know, all of a sudden I'm like, why am I tripping over my own feet, or why why is this not feel right? Because I I just grew three inches in a month or two inches in a month, right? So mm-hmm. that was messing me up throughout adolescence and puberty. I was a super late developer, so. I think a lot of it was work. People will say, "Oh, well, you're seven foot," but I can I can point you to a lot of seven footers that don't play basketball. Six eleven guys mm-hmm. all around the world, former college teammates that just didn't make it to the pros. Uh, so I, I put a lot of time in, a lot of effort, and I just love the game. I really I, I didn't play basketball because I was tall. I played basketball first and foremost because I loved it. I was tall as a young fellow, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Stop growing. Everyone passed me. I'm like, well, shit, this isn't good for a basketball future. It's <laughs> <laughs> passed me. Then I had a massive spurt, like 14 to 16, I grew six and a half, seven inches. Um, but I just love the game. I'd watch it on TV whenever it was on. I'd study it. I'd print the stat sheets back in the day off NBA.com and just take them home from school. I'd use all the school printers and I just love the game. I'd be, in, I'd be in English class drawing basketballs on my paper, even in high school. That's all I, I just loved it. And I just I hated Mondays because I knew Friday was far away. And once you got Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, oh, I've got a basketball game tonight, and then I'm playing all weekend. I was in heaven. So I, I really, truly love the game. And what is the difference, Andrew, between a good player in the NBA? Because let's be honest, to get to the NBA, I mean, you're an anomaly. You, most people never get to that elite level of sport, even the most talented, as we've just acknowledged, for whatever reason. But you get players who are good players at that elite level, but then there's that level above the Steph Curry's, you know, the Kyrie Irvings, Michael Jordan's, Shaquille O'Neal's, all of these people. What separates him? Is it a physical thing or is there something else on top of that? I mean, Steph's a mix of, Steph just, Steph Curry just has it. Like he just, he's one of those guys that, you know, I can grab, let's, let's try to throw this pen in that cup over there and he'll just two or three shots and then got it. He's one of those guys and it gets it even just random dumb stuff that he's never done before. But he also has a work ethic match with that, right? So ever rarely these days you see natural talent be that dominant. It's not going to be 
it's going to be, you're going to have it, but you also need to mix it in. And you see, LeBron's a little bit different just because he's a physical specimen. Like he's athletically and physically and stronger than everyone, faster than everyone. Steph's just, he's one, he's, he's a game changer. He's a generational player that's actually changed the game. Yeah. Steph Lyons, his physique, what he does. And, and he's just a great guy as well. You know, really good. The Warriors just lucked out. I mean, they got Steph. Steph and Clay Thompson are just both nonchalant superstars. Like you, they're just they still eat with their teammates, which is rare for superstars these days. They still hang out with their teammates, you know. And to have that is, is unbelievable. But those guys are just, you know, and Kyrie's the same. Kyrie's just got the ball on a string and just things that he can do. He's a magician, so it's fun watching those guys up close and trying to scheme and stop them. And how do you stop them? And I'm usually the last line of defense once they've got through half half the team. I'm the last guy standing, so that I try to block their shot or make it make it make it make a tough shot. But what you learn in that business is you can play perfect defense. Sometimes it's just better offense. That's right. That, that's right. And Andrew, I want to ask you a couple of more sporting questions before we move on to sort of politics and culture. But you mentioned there that often the superstars now. Uh, would be sort of separate from the rest of the teammates and, and stuff like that. I actually didn't know that, but it's sort of, not that it makes sense. I mean, it sort of feels weird, but for people who don't know that you might have somebody who's making $30 million a year on a team playing with someone who's making less than a million dollars a year, let's say. Um, and that, how, how does that how does that work now? How does that feel? How, what's it like? How do you manage a team of people with that level of disparity in terms of status and wealth and so on? Yeah, and disparity continues to grow. It's, it's probably your max guys that are out and making fifty to sixty a year. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. The rookie deal is under a mil, right? So for some guys, depending on where you drafted, so disparity is growing. Um, but it's that's the challenge. The NBA and professional sports. When I mean, back in the seventies and eighties and nineties, a head coach's main priority was schemes what offense are you running? What defense are you running? Can you draw plays up quickly late game? That was probably 80% of it, I, I would say, 20% was, was people management, man management. I think it's flipped now. I think there's there's not a lot of schemes that are secrets these days. The copycat league, whoever wins the championship teams will try to retool like they did and then copy what they're doing. So you're not really running anything that's super innovative. Like, wow, look at that play. I've never seen that before. We have, we're past that. So it's flipped now where I've seen coaches that are Hall of Fame, X's and O's coaches, X's and O's meaning drawing up plays, a style of offense, a style of defense, but they could not, they could not communicate with their players, or they were hard headed about the way they went about things. They don't last. Whereas you can get away with being average at the, that stuff, but if you've got a real good rapport with your players, um, if you can kind of relate to them, if you're not too disciplined, but you you got to have a good balance of all that. You know, you take player feedback as well. You're engaging. You'll you'll have a job forever. So it's kind of flipped. I think it's probably gone too much to the player player side of things. I think it's mm. too player protective now. Where players, no, I'm I'm earning sixty million as a player. Let's say I'm I'm, I'm a max guy. I'm earning sixty million, and we just signed a new coach, but I don't like him. And he's earning five million. Who do you think they're <laughs> going to get rid of first? Like it's, it's it's common sense, right? They're going to move the cheaper um, commodity to keep the the big star happy, and that's what we see a lot in the NBA. Andrew. I- when I look at football and I look at other professional sports, now I'm, I'm, we're about the same age. When we grew up in the 90s, if you look at you know, soccer and if you look at basketball, you had the talented Maverick, the guy who was a little bit out there at times, but he was brilliant. He didn't play by the rules, but he was so talented that it, 
it didn't really matter. And he was kind of magnetic. Uh, I, I really enjoy Alan Iverson, for example. Alan, to me, was one of those guys. Do you think professional sport has kind of got rid of that type of guy because it's now so professional and there's no room for it? Or, or is there still room for that type of person? Oh, the media love those guys because they're they're not as they're not as common as they once were. Um, mm-hmm. As soon as you get someone that's not going to get into their box and they're not PR prepped about what they need to say on things, I love those guys because I'm like, at least that's that's them. You know, it's, you know it's them, right? So, but yeah, they are they are much rarer because marketing money's at stake, sponsorships are at stake. You know, good press makes you more money long term. You know, say the right thing, do the right thing. There's a lot of players that just say and do the complete opposite of what their ideals and morals are. And I know that for a fact because I've been around many of them. Um, and that's our fortunate reality. But I, I agree with you. I love I love those hard on your sleeve. Look, everyone can make a mistake. Make the same mistake over and over. It's hard to forgive you, but everyone makes a mistake and we forgive and we move on, right? Um, so that's your ability depending on, on what you've done, obviously. But yeah, sports started to become very watered down and robotic. Uh, we always laugh here in the Australian Rules Football League whenever they interview, they do an interview after a game. Um, you know, how do you think things went to that? Yeah, you know, the boys did it. The boys did well. We did it for the boys. It was all about the team. Everyone says the same thing. You just like, might as well just play the sound, same sound clip after every game, you know, whereas there's a few rare, rare ones left that will actually give some personality and some cheek and some humor, but then. The media said, oh, what they said was sexist or what they said was this or what they said was that or they shouldn't have said that or that's inappropriate. And then athletes kind of don't want to do it. So you can't you can't blame them on the other hand, right? Because they get reprimanded by their clubs and the media for having any ounce of personality. Andrew, final basketball question. Uh, and this is very much about your own uh, game. You were what I would say an old school center. You'd play close to the basket, get the rebounds, get the tap-ins, you know, all of that, uh, putbacks, etc. But the game has changed now. You talk about the way Steph changed the game by taking the three-point shot, being able to shoot from further away, being able to shoot threes off the dribble, stuff that people didn't really used to do. But the center game has changed now too, where you've got you know these young kids coming through who are taller than you, and they can shoot the three, they can shoot off the dribble, they can you know it's it's incredible. Do are you are you excited by that, or are you one of those guys that's like no, they're they're ruining the the beautiful game of you know back to the basket from six foot away. Yeah, look, I think I think you, as an individual, you want to have as much skill, much of a skill set in different facets of the game as you can, because you become a more wide commodity. If you're one-dimensional, you're easier to guard, and, and you're just not going to crack rotations minute-wise as much. I still think there's a place for big early centers that rebound and block shots. Uh, we saw that in the playoffs. I mean, Jokic, he has the three ball, but he's not a three-hungry big man. Like he's not going to just sit out on the three and shoot trees all game. And that's the danger when you become a big. You should play a living in the paint, but it's nice to go out every now and then. But we're seeing the opposite now. These a lot of these taller guys with nice shooting touch end up just living on the three point line. Um, I, I I find the game a little bit boring in the NBA um, just because everyone runs the same stuff and has the same scheme. So it's it's basically a game of who could hoist up the most threes and whoever has the better three point shooting percentage wins. Really, that's what the analytics say. The more threes you hoist up. You got a better chance of, of winning a game long term, or you know, game by games over the course of the season. I find that boring. I, I really liked, you know, um, Phil Jackson's triangle versus the Knicks 
bruising, physical, failure hard, all the Pistons versus the Lakers. I, I like different styles. This team likes to run up and down. This team likes to hold and grab. We don't really see that as much anymore in the NBA game. In the international game, we do. I think our national league here in the NBL, which is FIBA, uh, the FIBA league, the Euro league, you still see that. And I think that's what makes the battles fun because you've got a coach with one wacky wild system and another one, and you're like, okay, who's David, you know, David versus Goliath, sometimes who's going to win? Whereas the NBA, it's kind of pretty predictable for the most part. And it's also, uh, just from a player perspective, I imagine it's much more enjoyable playing in, in a team where the ball moves as opposed to just fire, get, give, get it to a guy who can shoot the three very well. But anyway, moving on, I was sort of thinking, why has Andrew been so outspoken on a few recent issues? And then right at the beginning of the interview, you went, oh, son of Croatian parents uh, who left uh, communist uh, Yugoslavia. Yeah, okay, I see that now. Is that basically what it's about? You, you just see a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show being from that background, then you're just like, uh, no, this is too far now. Yeah, I think it's it's exactly that. Um, I listen. I listen to my grandparents who were, you know, my grandmother passed away you know, a few years ago now and grandfather a few years before that and they, they migrated from that and I talked to them a lot um, at times about what they experienced. They didn't even tell me 95% of what they experienced because they thought it traumatized me, you know, and um, they, had, they had some stuff they had to deal with. They had, you know, neighbors taken by, they called them the Udba, Udba police, which was the, the communist police um, for, for as much as just singing a Croatian song, for as much as mm. just you know, engaging in, in Croatian nationalism because you weren't you were allowed to say you were Croatian back then. So I, exper- I, I heard and experienced that pain from, from them um, throughout their child's childhood. They were constantly trying to move and find employment. They went to Germany, they went here, they went there, and they ended up settling in Australia. And it was a, it was a godsend. It's a beautiful place to live and, and it gave our family a new life. But that that is why we're, you know, our family in general and Croatians in general are a uh, a stubborn fighting type people, um, but then they'll have a drink with you after you're both battered and bruised with that kind of people, right? You know, you throw some punches and then you'll have some beers. Um, and that's kind of the mentality that I kind of have. And I, I, yeah, I, I listened to, you know, what my grandmother spoke about and, and she was uh, alive during most of this COVID stuff, and, and um, which we'll get into shortly, I'm sure. And uh, she was, you know, she was having PTSD with some of this stuff. And she's like, so what this, so not, this is what I left, this, this kind of mm. stuff. You know, she was in a nursing home at the time. You had to visit her through a bloody a glass window. You couldn't, it was like caught at the love window. You couldn't go in the nursing home to touch and view your loved ones. Let's go through a bloody window, to, you know. And so, yeah, talking to her about it, she, she had some real, real unique experiences linking those, the COVID era and, and, and the era of, of her childhood. Tell us more about that, Andrew, because I think most people in in Western countries won't have any idea what you're really talking about. When you say she was having PTSD and saying she'd seen it before, what did she mean? To the extent of neighbours telling on neighbours, neighbours telling, you know, in Australia we had neighbours telling on neighbours that they put in, in Victoria at least, they put in a, you do one hour of exercise a day outside your house, right? And I had a friend in Victoria, his neighbour came out and was like, you've already done your one hour exercise today, you can't go out again. He's like, call the police. I don't care, I'm going to do another, because he had a dog, walked the dog, and then he wanted to take his baby in the stroller. But that kind of stuff, um, coming to visit your grandmother through a love window, you know, not being able to eat together in the nursing home with everyone you've eaten with for the last, 
you know, however long you've been there, can't eat together anymore, got to eat by yourself in solitary confinement. Hang on, I remember this. You know, can't go out at certain times, can't go out there. Oh, you can go out just to get food, rations. You can go get your rations, make sure you go back home. So you link all that and people think you're crazy. Like, I mean, you know, I was getting called conspiracy theorists and all that kind of stuff. You're an idiot, you're a I'm just like, I'm speaking to someone who would live in that era that's saying it, not me. I'm relaying the message, but people didn't want to hear that at the time. Um, but there's a lot of links. You can just go on and on and on and on, curfews and and this and that. And government's always right. The government's got your best interest in we, – we, we care for your health. We have your best interest in mind. We would never do you wrong, you know. Um, and she, she heard that whole spiel, in, albeit in a different language and, and probably strategically told her a different way, but it all ends up sounding the same when you've been through it. Look, uh, Andrew, everybody here at Trigonometry is a massive fan of your glorious leader, Dan Andrews. Uh, good guy and very moderate policy. Right, before everyone gets triggered, he's being sarcastic. <laughs> right. Well, I looked at what was happening in Australia, particularly in Victoria. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Why did you go so demented? I have no idea. I mean, look, we there's, there's numerous different theories um one is we've never had no real conflict in australia um where our governments caused issues for the people to be you know for the people to always be kind of wary like oh trust the government but not all the way here people are like yeah the government's always got our best interest in mind you know and um there was no reason not to think that and we're a very kind of by the book nation like you know the example I'd give you is you could be in the middle of, of a desert and not see anyone in sight. And if there's a pedestrian crossing, most people here will push the button and wait for the light to go green. <laughs> because, because the sign on the side of the road said you got to push and wait for the wait for it to go green. That's We have arrows and things everywhere. Don't park here. You can't stand there. You can't do this. And people have been conditioned to that. you know. And another example I give is, you know, our news has just bombarded us with this without us even knowing it. And, and we grew up, you know, my father worked, you know, seven till five, five thirty, six. And I remember my father would come home from work just before six, dinner would be on the table. We'd watch the six o'clock news in the background while we ate as a family generally. And we'd ingest whatever was thrown at us, right? Um, and then you think now when you look back, you're like, man, like it could have told us anything. It could have told us the sky's turning green and you you said it, it's true. And the example I give is we had you know, we had water restrictions uh, in Victoria when I was a young fella. Um, we, had a, we had a bit of a drought. The government put all these mandates on. You can't wash your car in your driveway. You could only water your garden at certain times and blah, 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 blah. And I remember my mum, the neighbour was watering their garden outside of an allotted time zone. And my mum's like, what's the neighbour doing? She shouldn't be, go- you know, watering her garden. And I'm going to call, talk, you know, I'm just like, listen to yourself. Like, no, like. Why? What does it matter? Who cares? They want to water their garden, let them water their garden. But that's, I don't blame my mother for that. It was ingrained. It was ingrained from the TV. Dob, dob your neighbor in if they're, if they're doing something that's illegal by, by the government, you know? Can't water your garden outside of between 8 and 10 in the morning. It's 10 30. I'll call the council and get a fine. And and that's a long winded reason why we, we were so extreme with COVID, you know? And they scared so much people to, to, to the misery, you know, like, you got to catch it, and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you know we had we had all kinds of crazy stuff going on here. Like the, you know, I couldn't believe, like do, like dobbing on telling on neighbors, you know, make 
there was a state that was basically saying if you're out in public, even in your car by yourself, you got to wear a mask. Like it was just, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. And I, I was thankfully in a place that I moved up to the place called the Gold Coast during it, or I was up here for most most of it. And it's a coastal coastal city, smaller kind of regional city. And people here, there was at least a bit of a balance um, of like, <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. Sorry, I'm not doing it. Like, and you know, the beaches were full and had a few lockdowns, and I'll put a smile on my face people were like i'm still going to the beach like there were surfers that were like you want to arrest me like jump in the water and come and take me off my surfboard you know like but then i went to melbourne a few times stuart when 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 there was like a green pass where borders were open within our own country it was like every every, every state then basically had borders that you couldn't get in out of during whatever color code they they use i'm sure you use a similar color code red was extreme yellow was okay and green was open and i got stuck in melbourne during one of the lockdowns and I couldn't believe it. It was it was it was insan- insanity. Like I went to the grocery store to get uh I went and ordered some takeaway chicken schnitzel and I wasn't living in Melbourne at the time, so I didn't have um, tomato sauce or ketchup in the fridge. So I'm like, oh I need some tomato sauce and ketchup. So I thought I'd just stop at the grocery store on the way. I didn't have a mask on me. I literally walked in for like 30 seconds and got abused. Like dude, and I'm a big dude, right? Straight away. <laughs> like, like actual abuse. Like you're putting us all at risk. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> like <laughs> This was night. This is like you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. Empty grocery store. Maybe fifteen people in there max. You can still kill people, mate, with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can. But I'm not. A, I'm, not a, I'm not a close people person. I don't like people. I kind of keep yeah. my distance. Even without COVID, I was always a yeah. Screw the one point five. I'm a five meter guy. Like I'm always kind of yeah. my distance because I just like my personal space and whatever. And and just growing up where I grew up, I just like keeping my space. Mm. I couldn't believe it. And that was just a small. You know, little example of what I experienced. I was just like people and talking to family and friends and how scared they were. And oh my God, we can't do this. We can't do that. We're not planning a holiday because of the government, because of this. We can't plan this. We can't do this. Closed kids' playgrounds. Outdoor outdoor kids' playgrounds got closed. And I, I went, whenever I saw, they actually taped, they actually got the police type tape and taped up kids' playgrounds. So when I went for a walk with my kids, I'll, I'll, rip, I'll rip it all down. I'm on record. I don't care. I was ripping down whenever I saw those things. They were, they were covering park benches at parks. Park benches. Don't see it because of COVID. I, I ripped it off and threw it in the bin. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, and, and that was that was every day here. Press conferences from the um, the premier, well, Dan Andrews and a bunch of the premiers here were like, everyone was tuning in to hear the numbers because they knew that would correlate to a lockdown. Oh, can we get to zero, please? Please, sir, let's get to zero so I can go outside and see some sun for more than an hour. And it was it was it was crazy. It was a crazy time looking back, like absolutely crazy time. It was it was it was crazy here. Perhaps not as much as it was certainly in Victoria. You know, I get a very strong anti-authoritarian vibe from you, Andrew, which I really like. I mean, I think we've we've got the same attitude here. Um, but I, I suppose what I'm hearing out of you more than that is, look, being anti-authoritarian is one thing, but so much of what we were being told and what we we're being told to do just didn't make logical sense. That's, I think, what you you were talking about there. I'm curious, you as a professional athlete, did you just think that the whole attitude we have to this notion of health is completely wrong? So it's like, we've got a, we've got a disease that kills people who are obese, so let's keep everybody in their homes. Did that make sense to you? No, no. I mean, I, they closed gyms. You know, they closed gyms. We know sunlight, vitamin D could only go outside in Melbourne for one, you know, an hour a day or go get your exercise one hour a day. 
Um, when I was in Melbourne, I noticed I noticed a few things. I'm, I'm kind of a, a stupidly observant person where I'm just about dumb stuff. But so whenever they would announce a lockdown, so say it'd be tonight, you know, it's eight o'clock here. They'd have their stupid little press conference. We're locking down tomorrow at nine a.m. Blah 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 blah. Whenever they announced a lockdown, I noticed I'd go out to the grocery store to get food or whatever. Do you know what was the most busiest thing when they announced the lockdown? Alcohol. That's one, yes, but no, mm. fast food drive-throughs. Right. So, right around the corner from where we're staying in Melbourne, there's a KFC, and generally this KFC maybe has three to four cars in, in the in the drive-through um, on any given time. Even in peak hours, maybe it's eight or ten. Like it's not crazy. Whenever there was a lockdown announced, this 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 drive-through was to the to the highway. It was to the highway. Like you couldn't get in there. You wait. Wow, I'm wait. Thirty minutes for food. And I started to notice this, and I'm just like. That can't be good for your health. Like people are stressed, so they're probably like, I'm not going to cook. I don't want to go to a grocery store because either I'm scared there's people there, I don't have to get my car in a drive-thru. So I'm just going to feed my family and two kids a bucket of chicken and fries. Like, hello, you know. So that, that's one thing I noticed. Um, but there was just no incentive for for anything health-related. It was the only thing that was going to be healthy for you was to get to get a needle. That was it. Get the needle, and you'll be healthy. And you'll be fine. Nothing about anything else. Um, and then the whole conversation around, so you're telling me if I'm severely out of shape, I drink alcohol every day, I, I eat my, my diet's fast food, I'm, I'm X amount of pounds or kilos overweight, you're telling me the vaccine's going to save my life. Um, but it's a guy or a girl that's severely in shape, eats right, um, they're not, they're, they're going to be, they have to get the, the vaccine to live. Like, I just, it didn't make sense to me. I'm like, hang on a second, like, this doesn't make sense to me. So, I kind of spoke out about it a little bit and asked some questions and then bang, you know, media was media was all over me with anti-vax. I, I never once stated anything against the vax. My whole thing was like, can we, we ask questions? I severely disagree with the green pass about being able to operate in everyday life by showing your papers everywhere you have to go. Hey, look, I, I had the I had the needle. Can I have my coffee now? <laughs> uh, strongly disagreed with that. So then obviously you got labeled as an anti-vaxxer and I'm just like, okay. That's you want to label me. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna push back. And the fact that I didn't push back against the labels because I was like, if you're gonna label me, you've lost the argument. Um, that really bothered some people, and still bothers them to this day. Even with everything we know today, there's people that still will not admit that that they were wrong or bamboozled on certain things. You made when before we started this interview, you made a very interesting observation. Where obviously you lived in California, and you were comparing California to. Melbourne, and you were saying about you know the 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 hyper progressives, who their attitude is very similar in Melbourne as it is in California, and that led to certain things happening. Let's let's talk about that. What did you notice? I just noticed. I lived in both places. I, I've, I've said many times, Victoria is the California of Australia without the sun. Yeah, Victoria's mm. got great for the most part. We just don't have the sun. That's the only difference. The policies are very similar, um, very socialistic, very, you know, the greater good. And, um, you know, Victoria's a very pro-rainbow and trans ideology and all that kind of stuff. Very, very big in Victoria. Very, very big. Um, and I don't know if it's because... The further north you go in Australia, it gets sunnier, people are outdoors more, swimming, this mm. and that. Melbourne's a bit more of a colder city, so you're indoors more, you're on Netflix, the TV, the internet, 
don't know if it's that, but it's it's very, very similar to, to California in, in that aspect. And I just started to notice it. I lived in both places and it was it was it was very, very similar to me. So um yeah, just a head scratcher. I mean, I was I'm, I'm born and bred in Melbourne, Victoria, I was gonna retire you know, retire there and build a beautiful home and, and and leave my roots there and I ended up getting out because of it. I just didn't want to deal with that. And even COVID aside, I started to notice these things. Um, that it was just very, very. There was a, there's a group of you know progressive fringe there that dictate what the state does really through the government, and I, w- I just wasn't a fan of it. Didn't want to raise my kids in that environment. And Andrew, you you've obviously um, you are someone who's retired now, but you've been talking about cultural and political issues. You've been expressing your opinion, and I love to see it. I think it's really important for people like you to speak up and say what you think and take the flag that you've had to take. But I'm curious about the principle of it. You're clearly a very, very smart guy. And there is a a debate going on, particularly with regards to the NBA, where on the one hand, someone like Ennis Cantor, he expresses his political opinions and his freedom. We've had him on the show uh, about what's happening to the Uyghurs in China and and speaking up against President Erdogan, etc. And he was essentially forced out of the NBA as a result. And people say, you know, quite reasonably, some people will say, well, look, let's keep politics out of sport, except... When BLM happens, then it's obviously a massive wave that that goes through the NBA. And it just seems like there's a lack of consistency. What do you make? Do you think athletes like yourself, while you're playing, should be getting involved in these cultural and political discussions? I mean, Kyrie Irving, another one of your uh, you know colleagues, he got into trouble because he wasn't vaccinated and he had his views on that. Like, should, should athletes get involved in these discussions or should, should they just play the game? Here's where I stand on it. I, I stand on with sport. If you're in the game and you're coming off the field or the court and you're getting interviewed, I think keep it a sport. So how do you think you played? I'm not going to go political rant after I'm asked that question. In your personal time, in your personal forums, by all means, go for your life. That's for you to do whatever you want, whatever you're passionate about. I think in that two hours... We all as a society are so ingrained in politics and what's going on here, your local, your state, your federal world politics, Russia, Ukraine. We're all so ingrained in every single moment of the day, social media. I think the beauty of sport has always been it's a two to three hour release to get away mm-hmm. from that. Now we're bombarded every commercial break and jerseys and you know people not standing for the anthem and all that kind of stuff. I think it's too much. That's my opinion on it. But I think you know if Kyrie or even Andrew Bogan wants to be political – once you're outside of that little bubble and you want to go on your social forums and you want to do you know podcasts like this, by all means, I'm I'm all for it. But the biggest thing with the NBA and the NFL at sporting leagues all around the world is if it's the right kind of politics, we'll help you promote it. So if right, that's a release and and you know if it's BLM or if it's this or if it's that, all for it. But if there's someone that's got a different view or and has legitimate reasons for it, yeah, you know, and it's Tanner. I knew as soon as he wore those shoes, he was in some trouble. You know, he was obviously getting older. Um, is he a superstar player? No. But should he still be a vet min guy for another three or four years? Of course he should. But the team looks at it like, hey, this is going to be a guy that's painting two to three, four, five million a year, and he's probably going to be a bit of a distraction. We'll just we'll just move on, right? That, mm-hmm. That's the way a team would look at it. Um, whether the NBA tapped those teams on the shoulders? Probably so. Who knows? But... It's just it just it just always bothered me that it was you know if, if you if you're the mainstream you know agenda that's being pushed yes we'll hold you up but as soon as you go against that at all you must be some sort of 
est or ist or whatever it is, right? And that really bothered me. And I just, on top of that, just, just to finish that, on top of that, I know like this isn't something I'm guessing. There's a lot of players in the NBA that don't believe the shit they're promoting, period. And I've been with them locker to locker, played with them, against them, with them, whatever. I know what they say in the locker room is a 180 to what they're saying publicly. Like I had teammates that were super religious, really conservative Christian religious, right? Mm-hmm. And they're out there, you know, saying some things that are completely opposite to what they they are in the locker room with their families. Do you blame them? Who knows? I mean, there's there's money to be made. Is there's they're trying to feed their family as that all goes. But I draw the line on you know when you're preaching to the masses, you better be living the life that you're preaching. And I, I know for a lot of guys, that's not that's not the case. It's really interesting you make that point because I know it's a different sport, but you're an Aussie, so you'll know this guy. It's the case of Israel Folau, who is a devout Christian, and he came out and was honest about what devout Christians think about gay people, and that wasn't accepted. Yeah, he got to go play overseas, in fact. Um, and yes, that's the whole thing. If we're going to allow freedom of speech and, and freedom of, to be whoever you are, well, if that's his point of view, look, as long as he's not condoning violence or saying that, you know, they should be shunned or stoned or shunned from society, um, you know, that's not right at all. And that's that's where we draw the line. But it wasn't that. Instead, my beliefs are, marriage is for a man and linen, you have to respect those beliefs. You know, that they're his beliefs and he has a right, for, right to those beliefs. You don't have to disagree or disagree with him, but... I, you know, I'm all for having different points of view. I've, there's many people that I greatly respect that I disagree with, mm. but that's fine. That's 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 what you're supposed. When you become an, a teen, a child to a teen to an adult, that's supposed to be an attribute that you have as an adult. <laughs> Someone disagreed with me. That's fine. Take a deep breath. We have a discussion about it, and you might learn something new and vice versa. But you can. It's okay to disagree. Today's society, it's not, especially when it comes to public. Uh, mantra and, and stuff that the mainstream is pushing, you can't disagree with that. And I've been a big part of that here in Australia, even with the trans ideology, and there's a big issue here in Australia with, with with men infiltrating women's sport and women's spaces. And I'll be the advocate for that for young girls' sport because I have people reaching out to me, like that are like, I don't have a voice, I'm scared to say anything. But you know, my daughter just got knocked out by a guy in the under 16s rugby who's playing in the women's league. What can I do about it? I'm trying to help these people, and I feel really bad and. And people think I'm I'm doing this for some some side side hustle or gain or whatever. It's like, well, let me give those people some some news. I, I lose out on marketing just because of this. I lose out on 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 making a bit more cash on marketing and promos and speaking gigs. People are like oh, we just don't want to touch it just just in case someone protests us or gets mad at us or whatever. So I'm going to continue to speak out on on stuff that's just utterly ridiculous. And would you have been as vocal, Andrew, if you were still in the NBA or were you more kind of, you know, career focused at that point where you were like, I just need to do and I need to be on the court and everything else is secondary to that? That's a great question. I can't, I can't be a hypocrite and say that if I was in the midst of my career and I had that decision to make, I don't know what decision I would have made. I, I'm definitely not going to tell you that, yeah, I would have been all in, screw the system or establishment. I can't be a hypocrite and say that. Um, but early on in my career, I, I didn't follow politics at all. I didn't follow social issues till probably year nine or 10. So I had no idea what was going on in the world. And that was, I, 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 sh- I wish I could go back to that 
at that time where I was that ignorant of <laughs> the world. It was, yeah. It felt like a bit of, I envy those people, by the way. Like, we all. You know, you bring up issues that are like pretty, pretty big issues socially. You bring it up to someone and they have no idea. I envy those people now. <laughs> I really yeah. envy those people. But I don't know. It's a very good question. Um, I'm in a position where I can do it now because I don't need anything or need or want anything from anyone. Um, I could still be silent and get my net worth to two, three X by being silent and just playing the game. But I don't, I've got enough right now, right? So in the midst of my career, it'd be a tough decision. It'd be a tough decision either way. But I was outspoken throughout my later stage of my career, um, even when I was still making big money on certain issues. And you can look at, people can look it up online on, on different things and uh, right, wrong sometimes, whatever. But I, I was outspoken against the grain probably Probably about two thirds into my career, especially while social media started getting a bit more out there, I could actually get my views out there on certain things, and that wasn't as well appreciated by some, and it was appreciated by by, by others, and that's just kind of the way things go. Well, Andrew, and that's really the thing, isn't it? Because I think we were similar age. You're a couple of years younger than us, but uh, you know, we all grew up in a world where it was like you're allowed your opinion. I'm allowed my opinion. You can think I'm a dick. I can think you're a dick for having that particular opinion. We can still be mates. We can still go and have a drink together. We can agree to disagree. But weaving the sort of anti-authoritarian theme into this as well, it sort of feels like almost everywhere you go now, you have to, you are constantly forced to engage with political ideology of some form. So you mentioned in the NBA, they will enforce a certain worldview, a certain set of principles. You watch a movie, it's infused with all of this stuff. You're being lectured to constantly. And if you don't accept the lecture, then you are the toxic one, you are the problematic one, you are the conspiracy theorist, you are the anti-vaxxer, whatever it is. It just sort of feels like from every angle now, the freedom of the individual to be who they are, even if other people don't like it, is just getting constantly constrained and we're less free to be ourselves. Would you agree with that? Oh, there's no doubt. And that's what I'm trying to instill in my children. I've got two children, five or six, and I'm just trying to instill in them, like, if you want to go that way and the whole group's gone that way, but you're passionate about going that way or you like that route, go that route. You know what I mean? You don't have to follow. I'm big on not following the crowd, especially at a young age. You know, kids are generally want to want to fit in and all that. I think I've got one of them going the right way and kind of the way you float off butterfly if he has to it. Um, but it's it's tough. I mean, go back to your other point about you know following the doctrine. I mean, I was with the team. I got put through a critical race theory seminar while I was an NBA player. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. Really? And I was that. I was that guy asking questions during it, which was not very well received in a locker room of NBA players. I can tell you that. I imagine the color of your skin didn't help, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was like, I'm not, I'm not taking this shit. You're not telling me I'm racist just because I was born. And not only that, the, the it was like you don't even know my story. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an immigrant that came from a migrant family in Australia that faced rape. My father faced heavy racism. I got expelled from his high school for punching out his PE teacher and his principal for calling him racist epithets in Australian school as a 15-year-old. He was out as a 16-year-old working in factories. I dealt, like our family dealt with it, right? So you're not going to sit there and tell me that I'm racist because my skin color. So I was, I was pushing back on all that stuff and people were like, I'm crazy. And it kind of ended all funny. But I, got put in a, like, I couldn't believe it. This was before... Critical race theory kind of became a thing. This was in 16. So I kind of really started rearing about 17. Wow, that's early, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, nah, I'm not, I'm not, 
No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I, I disagree with this. The whole video they played, I'm trying to explain all that. You know, you can be you can be racist without even knowing it. Like I was like, nah, nuts, not buying it. Like I think if you're if you're a good person, if you're good to me, I don't care what you look like, who you are, what sexuality you are. If you're nice, I'm nice. You say good morning to me, I say good morning back. That's how I treat people. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to say good morning to you. Tell me your sexuality first, or your race, or this or that, right? And yeah, I pushed back on that, and I still remember it to this day. It was it was a very interesting time. Well, I was going to ask you about that, Andrew, because you know uh, this isn't a stereotype; it's a factual observation. The NBA is full of black dudes, right? I think we can say that. So, what? How did that go down with with your teammates, and and sort of did you start to get a bit of a bad rep as a result? Because you had a successful career after twenty sixteen. You won your championship twenty nineteen, I think. Yeah, I mean, some some there's some people that thought I was racist or I was this or I was that and I got to a point in my career where I didn't care like if you're going to label me something without knowing me or talking to me you're the ignorant one like it's you know mm. and I, all my best friends still to this day and teammates are are people from not only other countries but but African Americans you know like I still talk to on a regular basis and I've had some of my deepest conversations about these issues with Harrison Barnes so Harrison Barnes mm. the of Golden State Warriors and we we could actually have these conversations about different things and I learned some things from him you know I learned like I, I, we had a conversation about hey like I Harrison like you know I think I faced some racism growing up as well like I can't treat that, but he that he laid hey but the difference is you kind of have to talk till they know you're mm. from somewhere else but mine's just visual and I was like wow that's that's actually a pretty lightning point you don't have to say a word and people can be racist to you so that you know I'm learning right so we had those conversations and that's what we should be you know that's what society should be about right we had, we had great conversations and yeah, but I mean, there's obviously people that are ignorant, and um, you know, if you you're disagreeing with like once again the, the state-sponsored mantra or whatever's in an NBA locker room, I was always, for the most part, I'd go logic, common sense, and like don't agree with that. Tell the guys, dude, that's okay. You know, I had a coach that was a little bit religious for Golden State yeah. Warriors. He was uh, he, he was a, he was a pastor at a church in LA, and whenever we went to LA. 90 some percent of the team would go to his church i, I was a guy that didn't because i was like i'm not going to your church just because i kind of have to um if i want to go i'll go but i'm not going to go because i feel guilty about playing time or fitting into the group i'm not going to go i was i was one of those guys that went my own way and did my own thing andrew very quickly moving on i want to talk to you about mindset because to achieve that everything that you've achieved is remarkable what made you successful when there are other people who were more physically talented than you, more gifted than you? What separated you from peers who didn't get as far as you did? Um, I think that like a, a love for what you're doing is very important. I think if you love, if you truly love what you're doing, I see kids pushed into sports because their parents wanted, wanted them to do it or pushed into things because go and do that job because it's going to make you money, but they don't have a love for it. It's, it's just different. It's much more clunky and hard. So I think love is the first thing. I think just being routine-based, I'm very routine. I'm OCD on things. I like my organization sit out like this. Like I have cleaners come clean the house and they'll move shit and I'm not losing my mind. Like, where? <laughs> hang on a second. I know this was, you know, so I'm one of those guys. Not OCD where it has to be perfect, but I've got an order about things in my brain, you know? So I think being organized and having a routine is really important. I, I, I had that as a young fella, you know, before school, I train, go to school, after school, I train, come back at home, 
shoot in the backyard. I just have a routine that I was just getting um, used to. So once you become professional, it's kind of easy. So they're probably the two biggest things. You need a lot of a routine. You got to put the work in. You know, everyone says, oh, it's all about hard work, but it really is. You know, 10,000 hours, I think, to master a craft. Is that it? Pretty sure that's the number. Um, it's 10,000 hours to, to, to yeah. master a craft uh, of whatever you're doing. So, you know, if you're a young kid and you're 14 and do the math, how much are you spending a day times that by the, how many days in the year? And, you know, you want to become a professional, you got to be hitting that 10,000 mark closer to your 20s, right? So that, that's that's what it's all about. And I think put time, you know, and also the other thing, you know, our society, I think that that, that is, is taboo is failure. I think failure is a huge, huge key ingredient to success. You know, most people, I don't know exactly your previous business journeys or how you came to, to what you're doing today but like you have to fail fail is the most honest brutal way to figure out what you've done wrong you know your friends and family aren't going to tell you like so if you do something wrong they're not going to they're going to tell you politically correct way or they're scared to hurt your feelings when you fail and business goes under you don't make a team you get cut from a team you fail a diploma that's it it's brutal like there's no be all and end all but the smart people won't pout about that for three years and feel sorry for themselves and become a victim, have a week where you might have a few too many drinks and you, you're you mad at the world and get out a whiteboard and be like, okay, this is what I did and what do I need to do better to fix that? And all the good, a lot of the successful people in life have failed. Right? I think we should really embrace fail. Now there's a difference. If, you, if you're failing, doing it again, failing, doing it again, there's an issue there. Like you're doing the same thing over and over and get the same result is obviously a big underlying issue. But I think, on the general consensus, like that failure is taboo, I think we need to embrace that a little bit more just because it's a really, really brutal learning curve for people. And I think that's so important. And it's such an important lesson for kids and why sport is so important for kids mm. because it's a safe place for them to fail. You know, you play your team, you do your best, you lose. All right, well, what do I learn from this? How can I improve next time? Yeah, and I'm going through it with my son. He's playing soccer at the moment and um, I'm not worried about goal scored. All I care about is effort. And, and you know, kids look at goal scored if they played well. That's what they're going to leave. I played well. I scored goals, right? So <laughs> he's playing soccer, and he's a bigger kid. So it took him a while to catch up to the the speed and the footwork of, of, of the smaller, more stocky kids, which is great. But I, I put him in that for that very reason. And you know, there's a few games where he wasn't getting the ball passed to him. You know, kids are a little selfish at that age, which is normal. Uh, well, they lose and, you know, he's tearing up. And one game he basically, you know, somewhat quit. You know, he struggled for the last 15 minutes of the game and didn't want to be out there. And I didn't let him play the next weekend, just let him train. Uh, didn't let him play in a big carnival that he was looking forward to. Unfortunately, it was the hardest thing I did as a parent. I, I said, you're not playing in the carnival. You need to fix this. Um, and then we came back to training and doing a one-on-one drill and he and he kicked the goal and it hit, hit the in the training drill, it hit the, the left the left uh, post and the right post. The VAR would have let it be a goal, but the <laughs> coach was like, no goal. And he, I could see him, you know, getting teary-eyed and about to shut down. And I just yelled, you're up. And to be head up, he came out of the drill. And then by the time he got to the front of the line again, he he calmed himself. And that was the proudest thing I've ever done. I've ever done. I didn't care about the goal. I didn't care about everything else. He self-regulated himself as a six-year-old got back in the drill and actually scored a goal. So like I was like, man, like that's that is I was so happy with that more than anything else because I think it's very important. And he's used that failure, you know, the carnival and all that kind of stuff and and figured out 
okay, I've had a bad minute. I'm not going to let this turn into a bad five minutes, into a bad day, into into two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. So I'm a constant battle with that with my kids. And I think it's a very important lesson. They have to learn. No, they have to learn. Failure, they have to learn. Missing, they have to learn. Being subbed out, they have to learn. A coach not liking them, they have to learn. How a teacher doesn't like them sometimes, that's life. You're gonna, you have to deal with that. So if you can get that to them in an early age, um, Dana White, I don't know if you saw his interview from a little while ago, he said the kids that are brought up in that sense to be a little bit tougher and, and gritty, they're going to absolutely own the next generation once they're, once they're adults because it's going to be very many of those kids. Well, it's funny you say that because I don't. you will know who it was, but I remember reading about an NBA coach who said you never draft a player from a house with a two-car garage. Uh, and that's that sort of like that grit and determination and drive and the willingness to to keep going even though things are difficult. I think that's really what separates, in in I'm sure in sport but also in life generally, it separates people f- who make it from people who don't uh, because it, that's what it takes. Um, Andrew, it's been such a great interview. It's so good to have you. You're such a talented guy. I'm really lo- looking forward to seeing what other stuff you're going to do with your life. Have you? Are, you must have other projects you're working on now and things that you're looking to build. Yeah, I play a lot of poker. Um, big poker player, so I spend a lot of time playing poker. Um, really enjoy it. Just like the mental battle of it, um, and it's it's a game that I get lost in with anything I've got in my life. Even when I was playing basketball get to a poker table you forget about it so it's a perfect you know hobby for me so i do a lot of that i've got my own podcast called rogue vogues uh, uh we're in the process of actually ramping it up and going to video just finished the studio to get that all cabled up similar to what you boys out there so hopefully we can outdo you a little bit uh so doing that uh i'm also invested in a in a uh, pro basketball team here in australia the sydney kings two-time champions right now going for a street peak this coming season so a minority owner in that club and then I dabble in a bunch of startups, uh, kind of venture capitalist type stuff. So I dabble in, in all walks of life. I'm in health, health tech, healthcare, fintech, um, all kinds of stuff. And I kind of enjoy just being able to take some educated gambles on different things. And uh, mm. one just hit last week, thankfully. So I got a nice return on one. So I'm pretty pumped about that. That a, that a friend of mine, Phil Helmuth, actually, Poker Pro, put me into with himself so doing a bit of that stuff and just doing a little bit of everything um strategically didn't want to have a nine to five or have something that takes my day-to-day grind because i want to look i've dropped my kids off to school my wife and i alternate i pick them up from school i drive them to sport i try to be around as much as i can because you know my parents didn't have that opportunity to be able to do that because they're working so much so i want to make sure i'm there as much as i can i have that luxury to be able to do that and still be able to you know live live a very comfortable life financially well, that's awesome, man. I'm really excited for you, and we'd love to have you back on the show at some point. We're going to head over to Locals uh, for questions from our supporters. Uh, before we do, we always wrap up with the same question, as you know, which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be as a society? The one thing we're not talking about is that we're not talking. I think having open, honest conversations and views that are not aligned, um, I would love, you know, I've reached out to people from my podcast that have different views to me that are the anti views of mine and I always get a rejection for the most part. Funny, it's usually one side of politics that won't come on and talk to me. <laughs> um, but that's what we need to do. We need, we need to be able to go back to having a conversation without getting our knickers in a twist and getting all offended and triggered and all that kind of stuff. So I think, and that goes for both sides. It's not just left or right or conservative. It's, it's all walks of life. You know, um, I think having conversations and learning from each other, that's how human beings evolve for 
however long you want to think we've been alive. Um, so give, let's get back to that. Agreed. And uh, head on over to Locals, guys, where we continue the conversation. What's the one thing do you think about the NBA or playing in the NBA that most people don't know, but it is actually really interesting? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.